Friendly Advice to a Lot of Young Men and a Lot of Old Men Too by Charles Bukowski. Go to Tibet. Ride a camel. Read the Bible. Paint your shoes blue. Grow a beard. Circle the world in a paper canoe. Subscribe to the Saturday Evening Post. Chew on the left side of your mouth only. Marry a woman with one leg and shave with a straight razor and carve your name in her anus. Brush your teeth with gasoline. Sleep all day and climb trees at night. Be a monk and drink buckshot and beer. Hold your head under water and play the violin. Do a belly dance before pink candles. Kill your dog. Run for mayor. Live in a barrel. Break your head with a hatchet. Plant tulips in the rain. But don't write any more poetry. Charles Bukowski is an interesting poet, almost a reluctant poet, someone who feels the urge to be a poet, but also wants to rally against the absurdity of the value of someone's opinion, even though a lot of people put great value in his opinion. He's a contradiction, but he's an interesting guy. It's raining, it's quarantine. Um, one of my great loves in life is poetry. I find a lot of that poetry in music and lyrics, but I still find a lot of it from poets. And as I was going through books, and what I'll do occasionally is I'll go back through collections of poetry I've read many times and look for pieces, pieces I identify with, pieces that, pieces that, I don't know, Pieces that make me get a certain feeling and take me to a certain place that I identify with. Pieces that I, I truly love. And there's too many of those pieces to cover in one episode. I wouldn't even attempt it. There's too many of those pieces to cover in ten episodes. If you start adding music and musical lyrics in, there's too many pieces to ever cover. Poems come from different places for different people. Some people, they're very personal. People like Bukowski, his demons are very personal to him. And they come from that. Some people, they come from almost a um, a fabricated life, just like a short story of fiction or something would be. But a lot of poetry is, is very personal, very true to where you were from. Very true to who you are. Look It Over by Wendell Berry. It's out of Leaving's. Uh, poems. I leave behind even my walking stick. My knife is in my pocket, but that I have forgot. I bring no car, no cell phone, no computer, no camera, no CD player, no fax, no TV, not even a book. I go into the woods. I sit on a log. 
provided at no cost. It is the earth I've come to. The earth itself, sadly abused by the stupidity only humans are capable of, but is ever itself free, a bargain. Get it while it lasts. Wendell Berry writes a lot about his life, his experience, his love of the land, his love of nature, things that, that he's experienced and been around. Po- poems have a way in my case, of bringing emotion to me. And it's almost like a catalog system, whether it be poetry I write or poetry that uh, I read. I have a tattoo on my back. It's of a crow with a castle inside the crow. And, and beneath it, it says, without some strangeness in the proportion. Now, my sister has a tattoo on her forearm of a crow with a castle on the sea beside of it. And in her caption says, there is no exquisite beauty. We're two very different people. Um, She's technically my stepsister. She was two, I believe, when my dad and and her mom, my stepmom, started dating. She's just a year older than my daughter. We're very different people different physical blood but we have a connection and that poetry Poe is that connection for us and and poetry has that ability it has that effect on my life I'm constantly amazed at at the calming effect it has not only to to read it but to write it I open this podcast with Bukowski I'll read another piece from Bukowski I've read a piece from Wendell Berry. I will read a piece from other huge poets. Understand I have no misconceptions. I put myself nowhere in their league, not even at the lowest level. But from the first poetry book I I released, I was able to, to write things that I could find personal connection with as well as things that I had no personal connection with other than it was of my environment. There's a poem in that first book that's very personal to me. It's called The King of Dirt. Smell of strong coffee and gas heat. The feel of old worn wood floors on bare feet. Times often seem to stand still back then. The memories seem fresh as they flood back again. I sat and wondered as the old men held court in the middle of the floor. Everyone sitting in a circle with a heater at the core. Everyone knew everyone. I watched them come and go. Every face and name I came to know. He sat gracefully upon his throne king of the only kingdom I had ever known. The neighborhood men flocked as if to a clarion call. They came here to my world to discuss things large and small. The center of my world was here. That is now so painfully clear. The doors are now shut for good. 
Weather has battled and defeated the wood. My king has long since relinquished his throne. I had not the royal blood to carry on. With his princess in distress and his prince fallen before him, there simply is no kingdom without them. A once great palace now under fallen roof. I dig through the ruins for proof. I look to see the great kingdom of my youth, only to be blinded by sobering truth. With no king, this place has no magic, and so its fall is ever tragic. I did find some solace in this. It's not the rotting palace, but the king I miss. I was but a child. I was free and often wild. My grandfather stored my own mythical lands. He was my king, I safe in his hands. That poem allowed me to get through a very tough time dealing with losing my grandfather, and not when I lost my grandfather. I didn't write that till years later. I tried to be strong and deal with his passing without truly mourning. And it was those pent-up emotions that got me back into writing. I've told the story of my large gap and all that on another podcast. That's, that's beside the point. But I wrote that poem to get out something inside of me to get out a way that I felt. The third book of mine that was ever bought overseas was bought in England. And it's obvious by the last passage, it's about my grandfather. But still, I got an email from a guy. I'm 38. He was in his late 70s. And his daughter had got him the book. They, I'm sorry, I don't remember the connection. They had family that had moved over here uh, and worked in some mines over here. That's the reason for him getting the book. It was more about coal because I think a lot of people assume this book was completely about coal when it came out. The name of the book was Coal Kingdom, so I could, I could see that. But I got an email asking if I was the one who wrote the book. And I said yes. And there was no explanation of why he wanted to know that in the first email. Well, in the second email, he explained to me how he had worked uh, in a small, I forget what type of store he called it, uh, for his father. And the store had always been there. It had been there when he was born, and it was there all the way up until he was about 19, 20 years old. By that point, he had joined the Army. He was off in other lands. He come back to no store, to nothing. And it was to him not until his father had been passed for years, and he was in his late 50s, or, you know, before he realized the impact that those memories from that one place and that one person, what, what they had on him. And the building had been torn down. And he asked me if this building was still standing. And I said, you know, as of right now it is, but it's in bad shape and no one's going to take care of it. And he told me, go back, feel the wood, 
smell the smells, do everything you can one last time because when that building's gone, as strong as the memories are, you'll always go, I wish I could smell that place one more time, feel that place one more time, touch that place one more time, as real as it is in your memories, that physical feeling is so important. And to him, my poem had touched that in him. It's not the greatest poem ever written. He never said that. He never made any remarks to if the poetry in the book was good or bad. Just that, that poem brought back this feeling. And he wanted to make sure that I didn't experience some sort of regret that he had experienced because he could feel what I was writing. That meant a lot. That's better than this was a great poem and this was a great book because it was my first book and it, it wasn't great. And, and I'm done with the second one and, and I don't know that it's great but I know that it does what it needs to do for me and hopefully for other people. Hopefully someone will get out of it what I'm getting out of it. Edward Francisco has a collection of poetry called The Alchemy of Words. I'm forever jealous that I didn't come up with a name. It would be the name of my next book if, if I hadn't read this years ago and knew it existed. The poem is called Logos. What if the vital principle isn't breath or pulse, but words? Only so many so that when used up, the user is too. If words were more valuable than air, would air be less valuable than a curse, a prayer, a whisper, savored by lovers over years? Would thunder at last have a name other than fear for children cowering under blankets or hunching <clears throat> in, hunkering in cedar-lined closets amid the hanging ghosts of clothes? It's futile to speculate. Whose death would occur first given the unpredictable nature of words to predict what words fall short of predicting? All we can say is that what's being said would assume new meaning and deeper resonance and the next word out might be the last word ever to leave your lips alive. If that were the case, written word may have a much stronger value. If that were the case, we would definitely be more selective over what we say, how we say it, who we say it to, and to what we put value and time into. I most definitely probably would not, I most definitely would not be spending my time here doing this podcast. I'd be saving those words for my children. I'd be saving those words for my wife. But fortunate for us, that's... uh not the way it works. I'd never heard of Edward Francisco. The book's not that old. It was 2007, I believe, is uh, when it was written. I'm not 100% sure on that. But there was a lot of pieces in that, a lot of pieces, that really, really spoke to me in a lot of ways. And see... I find that in movies. I find that a lot in music, a lot in music. I find it a lot in literature. I find it in To Kill a Mockingbird. And I find it in uh, um, 
animal farm. I find it uh, in in um, Catcher in the Rye. I, I find it, but a lot of times, it, it's not the same experience that poetry can bring. I say I find it in my own poetry when I write. I find it in my thoughts when I think. I find it when I debate myself. Something I do often. But there's things that poetry can just do that I don't know. I, I can't replicate as easily with with other with other things. Poetry has the ability to to have a cause and effect kind of situation with my thought process. I can read a poetry piece and and regardless of what it's about, find um, find myself thinking about moving towards a, a different a different thought pattern about something. And it often caused me to think, caused me to question, which I think is good. But it'll often lead to me writing and letting things out. And there's often pieces, pieces of poems that, that just, that, that phrase, that part of that will burn into me and, and cause great thought. Edgar Allan Poe, The Conqueror Worm. Not the entire poem. This is a piece of a passage. Out. Out are the lights. Out all. And over each quivering form, the curtain, a funeral pile, comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man and its hero. The conquering worm. There's something about that. I don't know what it is. But there's something about it that that triggers an emotion, a flood, a thought process in me. Now I will admit, oftentimes, and it may be the thing with Poe, I am somewhat driven towards the more macabre, the darker, the more dystopian, uh, the more negative image, but it, it reflects the opposite in me it reflects light it reflects a a a belief in 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 good and and maybe it's maybe it's seeing that 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 negative side that bad side that dark side that allows me to counter with the good to counter with the great i don't know but I feel that, that I'm drawn to the dark and it somehow reflects the light. Um, I like that. It's that pull to a darker side that feeds my attraction to a lighter side. And I don't, you know, it's not necessarily going to be the same for everyone, but for whatever reason that works for me uh, Edgar Allan Poe silence there are some qualities some inappropriate incorporate things 
that have a double life, which thus is made a type of that twin entity which springs. From matter and light, evidenced in solid and shade, there is a twofold silence, sea and shore, body and soul. One dwells in lonely places, newly with grass, old or green, some solemn graces, some human memories and tearful lore. Render him terrorless, his names no more. He is the corporate silence. Tread him out. No power hath he of evil in himself. But should some urgent fate untimely lot bring thee to meet his shadow, nameless elf that haunteth the lone regions of where hath trod no foot of man, commend thyself to God. Poe has a weird way. He is unique. I've always loved Poe. I, I I don't I don't know why. I think in the mountains where I'm from, poetry is is a different beast because we've had a different experience. It's like the English poets had a different experience from the early American poets who had a different experience from people like um, Bukowski and 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 these beatniks. Uh, you know even even you know, not not just poetry writers, but, but Salinger and people like that. They had a different experience than I'll have. Jack Kerouac had a different experience than I'll have. But mountain people had a different experience than other writers had. I found a book in the classic reprint series. It's called Kinfolk's Kentucky Mountain Rhymes by Ann Cobb, Forgotten Books. Um, there's some old... Uh, books, old poetry in this book. Um, I live in um, Knott County, Kentucky. Um, I lived in a place called Pine Top, the creek that ran up. It was Car Creek. Um, Upper Car is what they called us. Uh, Above me, myself. There's a poem in here called up Car Creek. Um, now understand I'm going to say car different. I'm going to say car. Uh, it's spelled that way and that's that enunciated that way. I'm assuming that that's, that's how it's spelled phonetically in the poem even though it's not in the uh, title. Uh, I've heard much, much older people refer to it as car. So I'm assuming that's, that's the need for it being in that. And again, this is a very old poem. Um, the ways of the world are coming up car. Bilds, shirts, and neckties. I'm sorry, build shirts and neckties. Powdered pots and veils. Pies and fotched on liquor. Doctors, pills, and ales. Hits a sight all the brash that's a coming up car. The ways of the mountains are passing up car. Moonshine steals and manhood. Gear to weave and spin, good old regular Baptist, preaching hell for sin. Farewell to the old ways of passing up car. The ways of the world will be holding up car. Sorry ways, the old ways. They've a call to go. Only when you're grave bound, changing allows slow. Old folks will bide by the old ways up car.
Now, my understanding is that's a fairly old poem. She reflects a viewpoint. Um, and, and again, that, that could be the 60s. That could be the 70s. That could be, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't given a, a date on that poem. But my understanding was it's supposed to be old. I've had my questions about that over time. But that's one look at where we are, who we are, and the atmosphere that that poetry was written in. I grew up in a different atmosphere, but even though my family weren't coal miners, well, some of them were, but not my dad, um, I've never been a miner. Mining was very much a part of that, but the hard history of hard excuse me, of hard times in this region was a part of that too. In my first book, Coal Kingdom, I wrote a poem called Hand-Me-Downs. They so often lived with empty stomach and broken heart, slaves to the company store from the start, worked like a bank mule hooked to a heavy cart, property of coal kings and the empire they own, worked to grow the master's fortune and pad his throne, Worked until all life and hope was gone. Then came unions and new hope. Fairness always at the end of an endless rope. Same day, <clears throat> same dangers at the bottom of a new slope. Companies and unions have come and went. Bodies ever broken and bent. Same good men for sale or rent. Coal camps crumble as ten wheelers gather dust. New jobs and new hope are now a must. You can't feed a family off black lung and coal dust. Always being sent back deep into the same ground. When working backwards, new paths are never found. Today's new deal has a familiar sound. More talk of prog progress and a clean start. Followed by the same empty wallet and sad heart. Company stores are now gone. Souls are now sold to the local Walmart. Each generation shows less and less trust. Into the same world they're continually thrust. Borrow daddy's lamp and bucket and go back to work before the mine works rust. Hand-me-downs of coal dust covered regret. Hand-me-downs of fruit not ripe just yet. Nothing to hand down but death and debt. It allows, poetry allows that expression of a people and a place unique to other peoples. You know, people from New York may not know that same, they definitely don't know that same ex experience, that same feeling. They've, even though I've not experienced everything in that, I've been in that atmosphere and I've been in that place where that happens in poetry allows for mountain poets to get that out and, and to push that forward. It doesn't mean that mountain poets have to be restricted to that. There's very little of that type of stuff in the newer books, but there are kind of issues, other issues that we deal with. We, we are a collective. We are humanity first, and, and a lot of those issues are common issues, and we find that in poetry, um, more so maybe than other works. But... It also allows for unique situations and, and people with unique backgrounds to uniquely express that and 
make it palatable for people who have no frame of reference when it comes to that. I'll never understand black urban inner city life, but maybe through poetry, I, I have through poetry been able to understand facets of that that I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand the Holocaust, but through poetry I've been able to, to, to kind of see glimpses of that. There's things that I've not experienced myself and don't understand on a first-hand basis, but poetry for me is often the thing that's able to come in and, and give me that, give me that experience. And I hope that my poetry may be able to do that for other people. You know, there's, and there's a very personal side to poetry. That first poem I read of mine was very personal. This one was very uh, uh, personal in regards to the area and region I'm from. T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. The Burial of the Dead. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs, lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Summer surprised us, coming over the Stanbury with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade, and we went on, in sunlight, into the half-forgotten, and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Ben Gar can he Russian, Stam Os Uch Ich Duch. I'm going to interrupt this poem for a minute and say um, my foreign language is not strong. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousin, he took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. He said, "Mary." Mary, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. What are the roots that clutch, that branches grow out of this stony rubbish, son of man? You cannot say or guess. For you only know a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead trees give no shelter, the cricket no relief. And the dry stone, no sound of water. Only there in shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock. And I will show you something different from either. Your shadow at morning striding behind you. Or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. I'm always amazed by T.S. Eliot. what he's able to say, how he's able to say it, how he's able to structure it. I'm no um, scholar by any means, no expert. I can just tell you the feeling that poetry gives me that other things don't have the ability to give me. Bukowski can make me feel things that other people can't make me feel. So let's end this with someone who is a great poet who doesn't believe in poets. The Genius of the Crowd by Charles Bukowski. There is enough treachery, hatred, violence, absurdity in the average human being to supply any given army on any given day. And the best at murder are those who preach against it. And the best at hate are those who preach love. And the best at war, finally, 
are those who preach peace. Those who preach God need God. Those who preach peace do not have peace. Those who preach love do not have love. Beware the preachers. Beware the knowers. Beware those who are always reading books. Beware those who either detest poverty or are proud of it. Beware those quick to praise, for they need praise in return. Beware those quick to censure. They are afraid of what they do not know. Beware those who seek constant crowds. They are nothing alone. Beware the average man, the average woman. Beware their love. Their love is average, seeks average. But there is genius in their hatred. There is enough genius in their hatred to kill you, to kill anybody. Not wanting solitude, not understanding solitude, they will attempt to destroy anything that differs from their own. Not being able to create art, they will not understand art. They will consider their failure as creators only as a failure of the world. Not being able to love fully, they will believe your love incomplete. And then they will hate you. And their hatred will be perfect, like a shining diamond, like a knife, like a mountain, like a tiger, like hemlock. Their finest art. Hi, Carol from L.A. here. We rescued Sadie from a local shelter. With an Embark Dog DNA test, we found out she's mostly border collie. She's a much happier dog since we started agility training. I recommend Embark to any dog owner. You can test for 350 breeds and 190 genetic health conditions. Get the highest rated dog DNA test at EmbarkVet.com. Go to EmbarkVet.com and use the exclusive promo code DNA to get $64 off an Embark breed and health kit.